Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 30. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today, we have a guest who is talking with us all the way from North Carolina, John Huddle is the author of a recently released book titled Locked In, My Imprisoned Years in a Destructive Cult. Steve and I have a special interest in this book because we have loved ones in the same cult, and we also know several people who've left the group. We're trying something new with this podcast. Instead of an in-person or a telephone interview, we're using Skype, which is almost as good as face-to-face. The sound quality may not be what you normally hear on this podcast, but I know you'll enjoy John's Southern Drawl. This is a reading from Locked In, My Imprisoned Years in a Destructive Cult by John Huddle, copyright 2015. This is the prologue, otherwise known, uh, subtitled as The Winds of Destruction. Severe weather experts reported during the first six months of 2008, tornadoes caused 111 deaths through the end of May, the second highest total for any year in the Doppler radar era. Though I lived through through those months unaware of the death and destruction caused by this, this severe weather pattern, the winds of destruction blowing in my life during that spring were an ironic reflection of the course of nature's wrath. April 9, 2008 was a Wednesday. When running late for a service at Word of Faith Fellowship, eating is not a priority. Just get in, take a seat, stay awake, appear interested, and take hold. And know you're being watched. The end of the evening service brought another meeting for me. A voice from the podium said, John Huddle, meet in Ray's office. My thoughts raced. What had I done? Immediately I reviewed the last few hours. Where, who, what, when, why... Though these meetings were not unusual, after the internal checklist, no alarms went off in my thinking. Many a night was spent in Ray's office after a church service planning, reviewing, and managing the next crisis for my employer, Two Mile Properties. The first awareness of a strange breeze blowing occurred when I saw my wife standing outside the office door in the fellowship hall. She was as nervous as a bridled filly waiting to jump and run. Her nervousness should have sounded an alarm, but I missed it. I asked, why are you here? Where are the children? The children are taken hold of, she answered, avoiding my gaze at every point. Martha's name had not been called. Wading through the hallway, hustle and bustle, that narrow artery teeming with children and adults moving along their chosen path, my thoughts caught a glimpse of the hidden truth. She knew the purpose of the meeting. Her expression portrayed angst, and yet I was unsure. Will you be in this meeting? Her nod sent uneasiness to the pit of my stomach. Not a business meeting. Sirens wailed. Thoughts bombarded my mind. Waves of fear washed over me, leaving their residue. Why did the owners call my wife into this meeting? Even then, it was hard to accept one of the living mantras of the word of faith. Each part of your life is subject to the will of God. 
In order to know and live in the will of God, every part of your life is interconnected and subject to the ever-changing, more intrusive, and far-reaching control dynamics of the Word of Faith Fellowship as administered by the leader, Jane Whaley. She heard God for everyone, reaching into every part of your life, quote, sin in your life, unquote, kept you from knowing God's will. The next few hours changed my life in ways only known by providence. Time seemed suspended while I stood outside the office door. As a leader in the church, Ray had an office that served many purposes. Soon he approached in his slow and deliberate fashion. He sported a look which was meant to put me at ease. I recognized his gentle nature when he brought truth to someone. We exchanged greetings as he unlocked the door and motioned for us to come inside. I took a seat in the small corner at the front of the desk. My wife stood to my left as he made motions for more folks to crowd into the room. Josh Farmer took the seat behind the desk. As an attorney and owner of Two Mile Properties, his words carried weight. During the short, awkward exchanges of those filing in, quickly it became evident that everyone else had been briefed about the proceedings. Those in attendance included former pastors of the Greenville Church, Gerald Sutherland and his wife Linda. He had a tall frame, and his head was capped with perfect hair. His low-key demeanor made him easy prey for Jane's grip. Linda prospered in this matriarchal subculture by using obedience pushed by an underlying destructive self-loathing. My wife and I first came in contact with Word of Faith Fellowship through the Greenville Church in 1992. Andy Kay, my immediate supervisor at Two Mile, entered the room looking assured of his purpose. Andy, an intelligent and deliberate fellow, never ignoring the levels of authority inside Word of Faith, however, at times he showed flashes of self-desire betraying his shiny coat. About 9.30, Ray led off with a Why We Are All Here statement. Josh brought some things to my attention that pertain to you. Josh took the lead in a much stronger fashion. If I had known what was going on earlier, I would have addressed it sooner. Andy tells me that you've been spending more hours on your part-time credit union work. Your focus has been more there on that than with Two Mile. This statement made me think that this was an extension of an impromptu meeting back in March when Andy confronted me about my trust and loyalty. Wrongly, I assumed the fallout from that meeting had been averted. All in attendance remained solemn, waiting for Josh to finish and for me to react to his assessment. His ending ultimatum included, Tonight, you will quit your part-time job or you'll be fired from two-mile properties. Life inside a word of faith required synergy. My part-time credit union work remained a sticking point for years in the group's quest to own me. This position left me quote, out from under authority, unquote. My response to Josh included an awkward silence as I considered an acceptable and accurate reply. I have a real problem with that, I said. This initial refusal to accept Josh's assessment as the will of God brought the next level of reviews of my worth as a person. Andy spoke up next, pointing out the time that I left the job to pay a bill. Yes, I did. But with all the hours I put in, I felt justified to take some time for personal business. That answer did not stop their fury. It sent the personal rebukes to a new level. About that time, Brooke C., Brooke Covington, arrived. She blew into the room. Her position of leadership included a level of authority surpassing all others in the room. The length of this meeting instantly extended to indefinite. 
Brooke announced, There must be unclean in your life since you could not immediately accept and embrace the will of God for the job change. The scope and pace of the accusations increased at this point, moving from job-related infractions to my intimate relationship and private time with my wife. We were registering about an EF3 on the tornado scale. Their demands increased in an attempt to elicit a confession of whatever sin obviously resided in my heart. What is it, John? What is the sin so deep that you've hidden for years that is taking you over? The sin is blinding you to God's will right now. Tell us. Let us blast it and get you help. Whatever it is, it's holding you back from taking your place. We love you. You know that. We want to help you. Brooks summed up the barrage. If you are right with God, you would be able to accept the will of God immediately, no matter what. The session continued. Brooke and the others took turns berating and pounding me into the effort, in an effort to open my heart to make me confess my sin. Once a new accusation was pronounced, everyone stared and waited me to confess to something. During these silent stare sessions, I drifted into a dreamlike state. The people chattered around me, but my understanding slowed. Any response I did give had to be forced out of my mouth. I knew the wrongness surrounding this whole scene, but I felt powerless to change or stop it. With all that was in me, I wanted to forget this night altogether and get up and run. During this dreamlike state, I realized that each person in the room believed the way I was being treated was normal and acceptable. Later, that realization became the seed of strength, which grew and caused me to leave Word of Faith. After about 90 minutes, I did what I later learned other survivors did under the same circumstances. I agreed and confessed to something in hopes to end the onslaught. In hindsight, I knew the subject of my confession didn't matter. Obtaining a confession cemented me deeper under their control. After this useless admission, Jane Whaley stormed into the room, poked her finger in my obviously confused face, and screamed, You're fully unclean! At that point, in unison, all those around me blurted out, You cut your eyes at her, that's a devil. Suddenly, memories of other members telling their moments like this flooded in my mind. They talked of meeting the, quote, authority of God, unquote. Up until then, I had no idea what they were saying. Never had my inner personal space been invaded as much as in that meeting. The sea of activity spun out of control as I clung to my racing thoughts, seeking shelter and finding none. Next, Jane turned to my crying wife, and you let him be this way. Jane left the gathering, muttering she had other meetings. My wife, catching the spirit of the E5 tornado blowing through the room, began screaming at me, repent, and start crying out to God. At that exhortation, my hopes to end this trauma session rested on leaning over and doing my best to at least feign some behaviors accepted at Word of Faith as repentance. I knew it was shallow at best since the dreamlike session left me past feeling, as if under a dose of anesthesia. I retreated into the inner part of my being while watching this horror movie unfold around me. Even my hearing lessened and some of the rebukes had to be repeated. After two and a half hours, I still refused to give in to the screaming, rebukes, and word of faith reasoning. Brooke reached for the phone, calling for Jane's direction. Jane, we're not getting anywhere here. I think we need to quit. Once she uttered, okay, and hung up the phone, the meeting broke up. So odd, no one else seemed affected in the least by the winds of destruction that had blown over me. My wife asked Josh Farmer, does he go to work on Thursday? By this time, Josh was in the hallway. I don't need anyone like that working for me. And with that answer, 
I was fired. I surrendered the company car and the laptop. The rolling drama did not end when I left the church grounds. After a solemn ride home with my wife, the children already in bed, my wife exclaimed, You don't sleep in this bed. Shell-shocked, I slept in the recliner. Honestly, who wanted to be next to her at that time? I remember waking up the next morning to an empty feeling. Was it all a dream? Would things go back to normal and mend themselves? No. The destruction set on course by the tornado force winds that blew into my life was real. The damage was only beginning to be felt. I lived through Hurricane Hugo in 1989 and had experienced the aftermath. Thursday was the morning after the storm. The damage assessment began. I spent the day wandering, wondering, and thinking, what if things were different? Can I fix this? Can anybody fix this? What do I do from here? Though I could not see into the future, my world had forever changed. By the next night, I gathered my courage, telling my wife, I'm sleeping in my bed, and if you don't like it, you can sleep in the recliner. We slept in the bed on our separate edges, not touching. No doubt after that evening, our relationship was on a downhill slide. April the 9th marked our 20th wedding anniversary. So let's start with the first, um, the first thing you think of is, how did you choose Locked In for your book title? Well, as far as the title goes, I struggled with it. I knew it needed to be short, and it, but it needed to have a meaning to it. And to be quite honest with you, I was visiting my mom and just stepped out of the shower and heard the word Locked In and realized that was a multi-use term inside the group. Um, and it would it would serve the purpose. So the, um, I stuck with that title ever since. Great title. I like it. I'm curious, um, because you were in a cult, I'd like to hear your definition of a cult. Well, my definition is a, is a, a mix of what I've read versus what I've, I've experienced. Some people consider a cult anything that's antithetical to their theological beliefs. I don't necessarily hold that definition as absolutely true. Uh, it's been my experience that, and what I assign to a, a group as a cult title would be the level of abuse that's on the inside. Um, the abuse being emotional, physical, uh, whether they require Separation from outside friends and relatives, um, if they control the behaviors, the activities, the thought patterns, if they attempt to control the individuals themselves. And um, as I go through that, looking at a particular group, then it that definition is what I use, how much control and abuse is on the inside of a group. John, what do you think draws people into cults? Why do they go in? Well, first of all, people don't join cults. They join groups of uh, that they like, uh, that may espouse a belief or a purpose that they've wanted to be a part of. Um, groups that end up being cults, if they'll start out. They don't all start out dangerous. Many of them can start out 
innocuous or beneficial. They, they meet a need of an individual, whether that's a social need, a financial need. Um, they'll find some needs to meet, and then the, the once the person experiences that environment, the love bombing, the close friendships, the, the being a part of a group that's bigger than themselves and maybe serving some kind of purpose that they thought that that was what they wanted to do with the rest of their life, then they join wholeheartedly. And it's not until after you get on the inside that you realize there's destructive behaviors. So once they begin to experience those destructive behaviors, um, what keeps them there? Well, they have to make a decision. How far invested are they? If their immediate family's there or relatives or are they willing to give up the friends? Are they willing to give up their relationship with their family? Because once you separate from a close-knit subculture group, then not just in the group I came out of, but in several others that I read about and, and talked to other survivors, you don't get to talk to the people that are back on the inside. You don't get to some time. So there's the cost-benefit. You know, do I really want to separate? Um or do I want to put up with what I think may be my fault? There's the internal conflict on the inside, the cognitive dissonance of, of trying to rationalize what you're seeing with your eyes versus what you know in your head is wrong. And there's that, there's that internal struggle. And that's one of the reasons that being in control groups like that is such a, such a wear and tear on the emotions and the psyche of an individual because there's that constant battle on the inside. Um, do I want to stay? Do I want to go? Do I permit this to go on? And, you know, even though I wasn't involved, I'm a part of a group that may be involved in this activity. Do I, I want to stay apart? I mean, it's a, an ever-changing emotional landscape inside of a, a group like that. Wow. Well, then, after you left Word of Faith, you continued to live nearby. I would think that would be a a difficult thing to do. Why did you stay around the, the area? Real simple. My children were still there. I've kept the same phone number for the last, well, since well since 2002. And this was the last place my children knew that I lived. And I hesitate to move away and, and geographically make it difficult if there was a, an exit they'd care to make. Uh, Oddly enough, I do, uh, my main occupation's an hour away. And, but I, I make the drive and I do that. Um, but I'm staying in this area just as a, a landing place, not only for my children, but I'm able to help other survivors when they come out. Well, that certainly makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, has the, living nearby caused any kind of problems with, uh, cult leadership or members for you? Not necessarily problems. I mean, when I first got here, I realized that there was a, a business in town that was run by cult members, but they've since closed that office, and I don't run into them at the post office locally like I used to, and occasionally I'll run into cult members on business at different supply stores, and I mean, it's nothing cordial. It's really frosty. And we usually want to turn around and walk the other way, but it's not enough to cause me to pick up and leave the area. Good. Has anyone from Word of Faith Fellowship contacted you about the book? 
Not officially. I got word from survivors that have come out recently that uh, the co-leader Jane Whaley labeled my book a work of fiction. Um, <laughs> and in light of that, there are fictitious names of the ones that I wanted to protect their privacy in the hopes that one day they would come out. Um, I don't do that such a kindness for the leaders and for the, those that are in top leadership in the group, but I did for those that middle to lower ranking in the structure, and um, and I'm glad I did because some of them have already come out. Oh, wow. Great. So are you hearing anything from ex-members or from people in the community that know about the cult but are curious about it? Are they responding to your book? I'm getting a reaction basically from two different groups. Survivors that have come out have told me that they felt like it was a, a, a detailed account of what they went through. Of course, everybody's story is a little bit different, and what may be in their story is not in my story, but there's a foundation that we've all lived through. And uh, and then there's people in the community that live there for years that have been curious about what goes on behind the doors. And people would write me letters and say, I live near the, the you know, Word of Faith Fellowship. I need to have your book. And they'll order by mail or they'll, they can pick it up at the local bookstore now. But the, the overall reaction has been positive. Great. Actually more positive than I first imagined it would be. <laughs> so that's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about mind control? Well, the first thing I'd say about mind control is just let you know that it's different in one basic regard from brainwashing. Brainwashing is is adversarial in nature, and the, the person that is doing the brainwashing or acting upon the victim is thought to be an enemy. In mind control, the person that is having that is acting upon the victim, is thought to be their friend. It's thought to benefit. The, the relationship is between the two parties is supposed, supposedly beneficial. And the mind control is controlling the... Uh, I'll give you a good example. Stephen Hassan uses what he calls the bite model, where they control the behaviors, the information, the thoughts, and the emotions, B-I-T-E. And in mind control... The course, they want to control your behaviors. They want to control the information going in and out of the group. They want to control your thoughts by telling you what you should be thinking, and in turn, your emotions, how you should be feeling. So that kind of that sums up in a very short short order the dynamics inside you know dangerous subcultures that employ those techniques and control their members. Okay. Um so, somewhat related, uh, what kept you in the cult once you realized it was kind of a crazy place? Well, once you become so deeply involved in a group like that, not only myself, but I've talked to other survivors, an exit has to be planned. An exit has to be thought out. I mean, first of all, it was easier for me than some. I had a vehicle and I had an outside job. For the younger groups, part of the group that do not have a, their own, they, they, might, they may not have their own cell phone, they may not have their own job outside of the, uh, a church-owned company, they may not have their own transportation, they may be living in a cult-owned home, and so they have to make those provisions. If they make if they make the exit, they want to know what's waiting for them on the outside, and, 
And at times it takes planning. It takes contacting someone that's not inside the group as a bridge to get out. And um, so those steps for me were easier because I had a job outside the group. Interesting. So it's kind of like escaping from prison? you got to know what to <laughs> Well, I know it helps when prisoners have an outsourced program that they can go to and just not be left on the street, yes. And um, one of the part of the group, uh, I'm a part of a group called the Faith Freedom Fund, and that's one of the things we do is we help survivors of Word of Faith Fellowship and some other groups with immediate needs just for communication, transportation, medication, uh, clothing, food, uh, help them on to their next place in life. And we, you know, not everybody comes to us for help, but several have, and the stories have been heartbreaking, but it's been good to help them. Oh, that's, that's wonderful to no. know that there's a nearby source of help. Yes, good for you. Now, your book lists 145 rules that um, Word of Faith Fellowship members are expected to keep. How difficult uh, was it to remember and follow all those rules Is your, in your time there? Did, uh, did anyone ever measure up to that? How about children? Are they punished regularly for not doing what they're supposed to be? How does that all work? That's a lot of rules. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, when you're inside the group, no one writes the rules down, which adds to the mystical power of spiritual control over you. And yes, you were expected to know the rule. Even if you missed the meeting where it was explained, you were expected to ask somebody that was in the meeting what was you know said today. Were there any new revelations from God, quote unquote, which is code for is there another rule that I need to keep so that I don't get in trouble? <laughs> um, I was the first person, as far as I know, to write them all down and that would. I wrote those rules down in probably less than 30, 35 minutes. And then I realized later that I'd left some out. And as the, as the subculture evolves, some rules become obsolete and others, you know, new ones come along. And certainly with the proliferation and easing of the regulations with cell phones, there were more rules. Um, but if you broke the rule, it was an indication you had sin in your life, not just that you couldn't remember it. Um, you may be asked the question, what was working in your heart that you didn't hear God tell you that, you know, you weren't supposed to do that? So it was a way of mystical, spiritual-based control to have that many unwritten rules. And as when, when I came out and I wrote them all down and posted them on my blog, I got a call from a cult leader. She was very upset. And I asked her which rule wasn't true, and she said, that's not my point. So apparently, uh, either I left out her favorite ones, I wrote down too many of the ones she didn't want anybody to know. Well, some of the rules, I mean, really, uh, are about even very personal things like uh, bathroom stuff, uh, bedroom stuff. So, yeah, I guess maybe it makes sense she wouldn't want some of those out there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, well, they used a scripture inside the group from Job that God considers nothing trivial. And that was one of the, the basis of their rationale that what, what what do you have you want to hide from God, i.e. God's people, i.e. the leader of the group of God's people. So, yes, yeah, very intimate details, uh, some of them even comical to the point of, you know, personal bathroom habits, but other, you know, storing your clothes and folding your underwear in a certain way and ironing your clothes in a certain way, wearing certain clothes on 
certain days. I mean, it was ritualistic, but yet it was the basis of it was controlling. Wow. <laughs> uh, loud prayer or blasting is something I've heard about for many years. Um, I'm wondering if that's a word of faith distinctive, and what exactly is blasting? Well, it's one of the longer chapters in my book. I go into great detail explaining it. Back in the mid-80s, it started as a, a unique revelation to the cult leader, Jane Whaley. She started in the middle-80s and tossed, well, early-80s, actually, it's my understanding, preaching that revelation in Bible study groups. She brought it back to North Carolina. It became the signature practice of the group. Once you're out of the group and you start doing a little bit of reading, you realize that it's not 100% unique, that there's other subcultures in the country and in the world that actually practice similar things. But how it's applied and how it's used to control the behaviors, I would say, is unique to the group. It's a loud noise emanating by pushing up through your diaphragm, accompanying hand motions. Some people would call it screaming. Um, you were encouraged to consider that you were actually fighting the quote-unquote devil and helping people get free from devils. The basis of the practice was the belief that Christians could have devils which attack them on the inside or attack them from the outside or attack them in many different ways. And It turned out to be an experience which was interpreted for you to be a spiritual experience when maybe it wasn't also spiritual because after the repetition wore off any kind of aura I, I in my book I give a, a an account that I probably participated in that kind of activity 6,000 times or more during my time inside the group so it kind of loses its punch and becomes perfunctory but yet it's signature practice and it's defended and it is in many ways, what separates them from other groups. On um, on page 25, you um, you talk about Word of Faith's unique language, and as I understand it, they use English terms in unique ways. Can you give examples, explain their wolf meanings? Oh, okay. You're talking about the um, we didn't we didn't have deviled eggs. We had stuffed eggs. We didn't have devil's sweet cake. We had chocolate cake. Um, yeah well there were terms um, like oh well in the back there's a glossary let me just turn to the glossary and explain a couple of terms um, they had a term called take hold which could mean different things at different times take hold when you're using it outside the group could just mean you know look up it could mean just you know let me have your attention uh, fall in line or and, and inside the group, it meant all that, but it also had a spiritual meaning that you were not taking hold. The inference was you were doing something wrong at, at, at that point. You were checking out in your mind. You were daydreaming. You were given to some kind of rebellion. So if you were told to take hold, that was a, it had several meanings to it. Um, open your heart was another phrase where multiple layers of meanings to that particular phrase, open your heart meant in one way that you were not opening your heart, you were hiding sin. When on the, in the outside of the group, it could just mean become real and emotional with the person you're in a relationship with. 
But inside the group, there was always a spiritual meaning to it. Of course, locked in, that's the title of the book. It means different things at different times. But locking in generally was the act of submitting your decisions to someone in authority. And then accepting their decisions as spiritually based and always right. For you to doubt someone when you were locking in was a sign of rebellion. Uh, stay submitted. Uh, let's see. Get checked out. That was one phrase we used when you would get checked out. It was similar to locking in. But that was go. If you wanted to buy a certain car, you need to go get checked out. Sam Whaley, the one of the Jane Whaley's husband, was a used car dealer. And if you didn't buy your car from Sam Whaley, you were not paying "quote unquote" God's price. So <laughs> you, you had to go get checked out. Uh, one of the vague phrases that was used to control people was called "that didn't feel right." So someone could come up to you, and if you did something or said something, and they said that didn't feel right, then immediately you were put on alert that you're subject to being prayed over, investigated, interrogated as to what's going on at that moment. Uh, is there sin in your life? Have you given to something? Have you touched a magazine? Have you watched a, a, a television? Have you listened to a radio program? What, what have you done? Something is not right. And so that was... Another means of control inside the group. So, does that answer your question? It does. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Wow. From the years I've been following uh, the news around Word of Faith Fellowship, they've been in court again and again. And I'm wondering what, and you know, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But I'm wondering what keeps authorities from shutting the doors of an allegedly abusive church and school. Well, the proper answer to that is longer than you have time for. <laughs> but a short answer would be, in 2003, the church sued the local DSS for uh, improper techniques used in investigating them in child abuse allegations. Now, I was on the inside at the time, so my perspective is one of being on the inside then and on the outside now and doing research to material... Uh, with material that I didn't have access to when I was on the inside. And my perspective is this. The local DSS improperly handled the investigation for, I would say, lack of uh, lack of training on how to, to properly investigate subcultures that use mind control. So mm -hmm. they improperly handled the investigation. The church sued them. And it wasn't the fact that the church won, but the lawyers got together, and because the judge didn't want to do the process over because it would cost a lot of money, they reached a compromise in June of five. And in that compromise, attorneys who had no idea of the dynamics and the, the damages of what prayer would do outlined a list of restrictions on the local DSS, which the DSS took as, we can't do anything in that group. They became overwhelmed at the list of restrictions, and it, they've used it as an excuse not to protect the children in years since then. So yeah. the abuses didn't stop. They may, they may have morphed. They may have um, been hidden behind different doors, but the abuses didn't stop. They, they've, in fact, gotten a lot worse in the last few years, and a lot of the court cases have been child custody cases. And right now there is a five members of the group have been indicted on second degree kidnapping 
warrant an additional charge of strangulation, assault by strangulation. That case is being up, is held up in the North Carolina Court of Appeals for some pretrial motions. So it's a very litigious group. They grow their own attorneys. Um, some of those attorneys have actually left and have proven great sources of information. But it's, right now I would say there's at least 10, maybe 12 attorneys. Well, in, in training could be as many as a dozen attorneys for that group. <laughs> well, and the group altogether is, what, 300 or so? Well, when I was there, we were around the 450 range. They claimed to be in the 750 range in America, which I would just say that's evangelistically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, preachers are subject to doing every now and then. Well, how many you got? got well, we're chasing about 200, you know. <laughs> we're only catching about 50, so... <laughs> <laughs> you've blogged about cults for several years uh, do you feel like eyes have been opened because of your transparency about your experience I do get a lot of emails from family members that have their family members are still on the inside of that group or other groups and there has been you know positive feedback as to my post have helped explain the dynamics on the inside and why their family members have a hard time seeing what may be considered uh, unusual or obtuse behaviors and why they would still stay in. Um, and then I get emails from survivors that have come out and felt like that reading my material and my book has been a source of validation for what they went through. And um, it's been rewarding but quite humbling at times to, to read some of the comments. That's great. Um, tell us where we can find that blog. The blog is at religiouscultsinfo.com. Okay. We'll repeat that later and also put that on the website. Uh, what advice do you have for the, those of us who have uh, loved ones and friends within the cult? Well, first, let me go back to the blog. There's a page called Quick Links at the top. The group Survivor Stories, and there's over 700,000 published words on that blog, so you can get lost in a hurry. Um, <laughs> so on the Quick Links page has some topics of interest in Survivor Stories. The bottom right-hand side has a search feature where you can search, like, Loud Prayer or a, the name of a particular person involved in a court drama or whatever. Now, your question was what advice that I would have for the outside of the still on the inside? That was your question? Yes. Um, don't give up hope. You know, we each get involved in our everyday life and the, the minutiae that we have to, to survive, we just... At times, it's easy to, to lose hope, and especially when the relatives on the inside don't celebrate holidays, and you feel that cut off, and you feel that shut shut door there. Um, mm -hmm. I would encourage you at other times, days that they don't celebrate, maybe not this time of year, maybe not their birthday, but other times, for no particular reason, send them a card, reach out to them. I try to give them a call at a time when they don't have their defenses up because it's Valentine's Day or because it's... Easter or whatever, but reach out to them and, and um, do whatever it takes to send them a note or try to keep the contact going um, and just listen. Just just tell them you're there. You, 
you don't you not, don't necessarily have to prove a point, but you can just be there to listen because in the next few months there are going to be a lot of questions coming out of that group, and it's a good time to to reestablish contact with relatives. However simple and brief it might be, just let them know you're there to to listen, and if they ever have a question, you're there to to help them. And if you can't find the answer, you'll help them get the answer to the question. Good advice. So, yeah. Just kind of a follow-up question. Is there any way we can help them escape, or are we just supposed to, or do you just recommend we be loving and kind and welcoming? Well, offering the handout, whether it's, you know, if you feel like they're getting close and they, they say, you know, I, if it comes down to it and they don't know anybody locally, the the Faith Freedom Fund, you can contact me uh, and give out my phone number. But also, with the way things are changing, they could go to the local government, uh, whether it's the local uh, police officials, the Red Cross, uh, somewhere, if they feel like they need to make an immediate escape and don't want to involve myself or the resources that we have, um, there are resources locally that would help them. And, and then after they reach one of those resources, if they want to contact the Faith Freedom Fund for any kind of help, the transportation to get out of the area or communication to find relatives would be happy to do that. Great. Being sensitive to where, you know, they might, it might just be something as simple as, you know, if they ask you what your email address is, that might be a clue that they want to communicate with you covertly. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us about your sequel to Locked In? I've got a second book in the works. The working title is Unlocked. And I, I want to share what I've learned since I left the group, um, the personal survival struggles that I had, not only emotionally with the, the further implosion of my family, but struggling against cancer. And um, I want to, in that book, outline different publicly known events that were happening at the same time of my personal struggles. Those events uh, that the Word of Faith Fellowship would hold, most of them revolve around the Holocaust Museum project that they have. And um, depending on the time frame that I can include, I'll include different court battles, court cases that are public information. I'm hoping for like mid to late spring of 16. So, uh, so you're putting a lot of work in it. It sounds like a lot of research that you need to do. It's going to be more research than the first book. The first book, I had been writing it all along the perspective as I wrote my blog. I mean, but I included things in the book that were not in the blog, of course. But uh, the second book is going to be a lot more. In some ways, I'll be revealing a lot more personal information than I've ever revealed on my blog. Mm. All right. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate that. Um, our listeners can look for Locked In on Amazon or order it from their local bookstores. Uh, where else can they find it? Um, in the next few weeks, it'll be on Barnes & Nobles, and I'll have other distribution channels set up. But for right now, Amazon's the main one. Uh, locally, Great Expectations Books and More carries it in Rutherford County. And um, it is print and Kindle version also on Amazon. 
good. And um, we'll be sure to let listeners know when your next book is available. To repeat, uh, your blog is uh, www.religiouscultsinfo.com. Uh, and you're always open to new new readers, right? Always open to new readers. I do have information about other groups and other survivors and how their their experiences were similar to mine on that blog. So there's it's not just centered on the one group. There are other groups that are represented there. Yeah, it's full of great information. So thanks for your time. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity to share with your 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 readers. Yeah, we'll we'll be interested to follow just um, how well that book does and the opportunities you've had to meet with uh, people like us who are outside the group but have a great interest in it, and then people who are inside coming out. And there's there's going to be a lot more of those in the next few years. So let's 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 be aware of that. That's going to be exciting. It is great. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, thanks. So, Bye. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. I'm going to wrap it up with a few quotes. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. That's Nelson Mandela. Here's one from Pope John Paul II. Freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. And then from Jean-Paul Sartre, freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.